You know, I think that the apprenticeship model is really interesting and it hasn't really caught on as much in the United States yet. Hello everyone and welcome to the EdTech Podcast and this series episode of the VocTech Podcast Learning Continued, which seeks to explore the intersection of adult learning and tech. My name is Sophie Bailey and you are very welcome. A big shout out to UFI Charitable Trust and UFI Ventures for supporting this new series and vocational skills development in the UK through their investments and grants in vocational technology. You can follow online at hashtag VocTech and at podcast EdTech on Twitter. This week we are looking at investment in lifelong learning and workforce development. First up, I'm in conversation with Marissa Lohman at Village Capital. We chat about Village Capital's Future of Work and Learning Accelerator programme and Marissa's background in early edtech ecosystem building. I'm then in conversation with Owen Henkel, the Investment Director at Pearson Ventures. We talk about a $50 million fund for lifelong learning innovation, the importance of venture capitalists having expertise in their investment areas and the cathartic experience of fuck-up nights. We also find out about Marissa's and Owen's past formative experiences in education. If you enjoyed this episode, keep your eyes peeled for a future recording with Joe Ludlow talking about the investment philosophy of UFI Ventures and how the consumerization of vocational technologies is opening up learning to equip individuals and the UK economy to more relevant skills. This week, we are editing on new software for the first time in three years, so bear with us as we take on the steep learning curve and hone our sweet editing skills. Okay, here we go. Yeah, I'm delighted to have Marissa Lohman, Head of Education Practice at Village Capital, uh, on the line. And Marissa, I know that we spoke before and we were really battling against some terrible Wi-Fi and the sound quality wouldn't have been great. So I'm really, really thrilled that you've been so generous to come back and record this again. And in the meantime, I've had a chance to really get to grips with what a pivotal and interesting role you've had to play in the EdTech ecosystem. So welcome once again to the EdTech podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So a little bit about you before we start. I've got here, Marissa is a workforce development thought leader who trains and invests in the top US education companies focused on helping college students land their first job and continuous learning for adults, including HR tech, recruitment and hiring, upskilling and reskilling. And for those who follow the edtech space, you'll be excited to know that Marissa was one of the founding members of the Startup New York and Startup Boston events, which also evolved into Learn Launch, the accelerator community and workspace coming out of Boston. She's previously consulted for the likes of Noodle, John Katzman's venture, who was previously on one of our recent episodes, and uh, worked in communications for Teach for America, as well as mentoring companies at Learn Launch. But now you operate primarily as an investor in your own latest venture, being Village Capital, focused on workforce development. So first of all, that's quite a pedigree in edtech, so covering writing, setting up communities and investing. So how do you keep all those plates spinning? Sure. Well, you know, I really enjoy working with early stage startups and helping them think about ways to grow, especially in the education landscape, which 
you know, it was a pretty fragmented market and hard for these companies to scale quickly. But yeah, I would say that, you know, all of those things are kind of tied together. So, you know, supporting startups, helping them grow leads to them getting investment, strategic partnerships, and, you know, more customers. And you studied technology and entrepreneurship at university. So I just wondered how important you felt the degree program was alongside other experiences like working on TEDx and interning at investment firms during your studies as well. You know, I didn't study tech in undergrad, but I got my MBA at Cornell Tech, which is a more technology and entrepreneurship focused MBA program. And I think that, you know, that program really shaped, you know, my lens on kind of the future of technology and learning about tools like AR and VR and how they can apply in education as well as other sectors. Um, And it also gave me the chance to, you know, really dive deep and work with engineers on projects thinking about like the product development process in more depth and really you know making me better at you know the venture capital field because you know I've had a little bit more hands-on experience on the tech side of building a startup and what that takes. And I know that last time we spoke we talked a little bit about sort of how edtech is more I suppose the terminology around educational technology, the investment, the support systems around what would previously be understood as edtech are uh, to some extent gearing or changing and more focusing towards sort of lifelong learning and this idea of you know workplace learning and, and bridging that gap between perhaps more formal education and and continuing to learn in the workplace I just wondered so you mentioned then that the sort of university side of things and, and that education part of things in the traditional sense is quite fractured What are you seeing in terms of workplace learning and whether that also suffers that sort of gap between all of those different stakeholders as well? Sure. You know, I think that in the workplace, you know, there's a lot of tools being built to tackle different aspects of challenges that companies are currently facing. So, you know, in the HR tech space, which is also kind of integrated with the ed tech world, we're seeing a lot of companies focusing on how to improve the recruiting process for bringing in more diverse hires and you know focusing more on skills based training and you know hiring versus you know what's on your resume or where you went to school mm-hmm. um, as well is on the diversity inclusion side so helping workers think more about how to be more empathetic in the workplace and think from the lens of other employees that might be having a different experience them them in a workplace environment and helping them really understand that and kind of work through those challenges. And then, you know, I think that contributes a lot to employee retention and, you know, how companies now are, I think, as the job market becomes more competitive, you know, companies are trying to come up with innovative ways to keep employees, especially millennials who tend to change jobs every, you know, two to three years. <laughs> yeah, we're so, so fickle, us millennials. And, and then the Gen Z is a whole different kettle of fish. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. You mentioned sort of, you know, innovating in recruitment and the skills part of things. I've just did a recording this morning with Handshake. I'm not sure if you're familiar oh, yeah. with them with the the gentleman that's kind of setting up their UK and Europe part of the business, I suppose. So, yeah, we we were discussing many of these similar problems. So one of my questions was, in the UK, people are returning to this idea of the apprentice and apprenticeships 
And also degree apprenticeships. So, you know, being able to work on the job, but also become as qualified as, you know, during that time as you would if you went straight through university. I just wondered from your experience, you know, either being having been based in Boston or, you know, what you're seeing across the state, whether there are similar policy developments that are supporting more diverse routes into work as well. You know, I think that the apprenticeship model is really interesting and it hasn't really caught on as much in the United States yet. But I think that there are some companies trying to tackle this from a kind of different angle. So, you know, one example that comes to mind uh, is a company we worked with last year called Parker Dewey. You know, they're really focused on micro internships for college students. So helping them get on the job, real work experience while they're still in college. And that will you know, help build their resume more from a project learning perspective and help employers understand what they can really do, you know, post-college, giving them a little bit more depth to their resume and really helping students that don't come from, you know, the top tier universities still get a leg up and be seen as, you know, high quality hires. Mm-hmm. I saw, um, is it Netpris as well, about bringing professionals into the classroom, which seems to be one of your past cohorts as well. Yeah, so they're more focused on the K-12 market and thinking about, you know, how to get students excited about careers at an earlier age. You know, thinking about how to re-engage or, you know, better engage freelance workers. And, you know, some of the ones that are kind of interesting, I think, are ones that are focused on, you know, helping freelancers get more steady work with the same company, um, helping companies vet those freelancers better and, you know, provide kind of a more continuity on both sides of the marketplace. And, you know, a, a company that we invested in that is sort of in this vein is Nurse Dash. So they're more focused mm-hmm. on the healthcare training space, but it's kind of the same idea where, you know, a lot of clinicians and nurses, you know, aren't full-time employees at hospitals, but they are, you know, looking for jobs that fit within their schedules. And then mm-hmm. hospitals are looking for ways to really find the best, the best, workers for, you know, those different shifts. And there's essentially trying to do a better matching service for those both sides of the marketplace and improve, you know, the ability for hospitals to select who they want to come in on a more regular basis and be able to rate those people, which hasn't traditionally been available before. That's really interesting to hear because I know I see a lot of discussion around this on social media for teachers, for example, where if the profession could allow them to be a bit more flexible with their time, I think, we, you know, because we've got a massive recruitment retention crisis in teaching here in the UK, then perhaps, the US, yeah. yeah, then perhaps they'd stick around a bit more. But it's like, you know, the, the rigid nine to five grid after a while just becomes a bit grueling. Right. Yeah. I mean, we have seen a couple startups, you know, in the substitute teaching space and kind of doing a similar matching with that. So I think that that teaching space is definitely growing and seeing some companies that are trying to tackle that professional development side of things as well. And, you know, how to keep younger teachers, especially in the workforce, have them be lifelong educators versus just working in the field for a couple of years and then leaving. Mm-hmm. And so how long's Village Capital been going for? Yeah. So Village Capital has been around for about 10 years now. Wowzers. Okay. For those people listening, who do you love investing in? So what's your ideal company out there? Sure. So, you know, we run accelerator programs for early stage startups um, across five different sectors. 
So, you know, education or, you know, future of work is really my focus, but we also look for companies in fintech, healthcare, agriculture, and energy, both in the U.S. and globally. And, you know, we really look for companies that have, you know, some traction, some revenue, product market fit, but are at that point where they're really looking to scale beyond their first few set of customers and are looking for a program that can really support them in doing so. And, um, you know, we also look for companies that have a impact focus. So, you know, that kind of has to be baked into their business model. They have to be solving a real problem in the market. In addition to that, we look specifically for companies that are outside of major tech hubs like Silicon Valley, New York, and Boston, as well as companies led by female founders or minority mm-hmm. founders. And, you know, our goal is really to democratize entrepreneurship and increase the access of capital to, you know, companies that don't traditionally receive it, which are, you know, in those demographics that I mentioned. And that's super interesting because I, I noticed on your, you know, your past companies or current companies that, you know, they're from all over the place, whether it's in India or in the States or Spain, you just mentioned. So how do you go about selecting those companies? Are you in sort of a privileged position where they come to you or is that a lot of travel? Um, sure. So, you know, we'll have a recruitment cycle every year for, you know, the next program. And then, you know, we'll do kind of a mix of outreach to companies that we think would be a good fit. You know, we definitely get, you know, companies applying on their own. You know, we have a lot of referrals from alumni companies, mm. uh, advisory board, um, you know, other investors in in the sector. Um, and then we also attend a lot of conferences and other events that are sector specific to really attract companies that are in that vertical and at the right stage. And do you co-invest with other investors out there or do you tend to do that as a sort of solo thing? We would never be the lead on an investment. So typically we'll put in seventy-five dollars to $100,000 into the top two peer selected companies. So the companies themselves actually make the investment decision initially on you know, which companies we will invest in. And then, you know, we have the ability to do follow on as well. But yeah, we would always be in the round with other investors. And is, is Village Capital, is your kind of strategy, is it about getting a return on investment? Or is it about more kind of broadening what kind of developments are out there? Sure. I mean, you know, we think of ourselves as an impact investor. So, you know, we're looking at companies that we think have the potential to be venture growth in terms of, you know, scale, but we also want to have impact on society. And so we're looking for companies that are, you know, really solving major problems within these sectors. So, you know, in education, you're thinking about how to retain college students, um, how to get them jobs and how to really uh, change the future of the workforce through, you know, upskilling and reskilling and that kind of thing. So those are, you know, critical things we look for in addition to just whether this company is a venture backable company. Um, You know, we also have impact metrics that we track for all of our portfolio companies. And those are individual, you know, specific to the companies. That's something that's really important to us to see, you know, how they're really creating new jobs in the marketplace, you know, serving more students, especially underserved populations and, you know, really creating change in society. And finally, where does your own funding come from? So is that, you know, how did you develop the fund in the first place? So our fund, you know, we have a lot of LPs who invested in that initial fund. And then, you know, for our accelerator program side of things, you know, we have a lot of corporate and foundation sponsors that, you know, partner with us on those programs. 
I noticed this morning that uh, this morning UK time, Bernie Sanders is proposing to wipe out student debt in the US by taxing Wall Street. <laughs> so I wondered what your thoughts were around this, as I'm I'm sure that it would, uh, you know, uh, be a different type of lever for some of the organisations that are out there. Sure, um, you know, I think that it's a huge problem to solve, and it's definitely one of the biggest problems in education right now is really having, you know, all of these students saddled with debt that is, you know, in some cases probably impossible to pay back in their lifetime. So I think we definitely need solutions that will help reduce that debt or, you know, decrease the cost of college. You know, I don't know if, um, you know, something that sweeping of a change would really actually go through and, you know, legislation and actually pass. But I think that I've definitely seen a lot of startups trying to think about this financially crisis and how to really help students and, you know, I think I've seen two kind of models that are really exciting. One is around helping students get more transparency on college selection. So thinking really about holistically about financial aid packages and what the return on investment would be if they were to go to a college and major in something, uh, you know, what their actual starting salary could be post-college and, you know, not just picking colleges based on the brand name, but really thinking through the job outcomes piece. And then, you know, on the other side, I think I've ISAs are kind of starting to grow in the market. And I think, you know, I could see colleges eventually, you know, having that model where, you know, students aren't really paying back anything until they actually land a job versus just graduating. Yeah. So like in the UK, you only start repaying your student loan when you start working above a certain level of salary. Um, so the idea that you finish and then you have to pay it back straight away is pretty terrifying to us, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, it's definitely a huge challenge. And I think it's, causing a lot of students to take on jobs that they're overqualified for just to start yeah. paying back student loans. Yeah, yeah. So one question we ask all of our guests and then I and then I'll let you get on with the rest of your day is this podcast series is all about workplace learning. So what are some of the most random jobs that you've ever done? Because we all have our professional CVs and then there's all those funny ones that people never knew about. Sure, let me think. You know, I once in a long time ago, I was a counselor at a camp for hearing impaired children. Mm, wow. um, so that's kind of that's so cool. I've got, I've got a cousin that's got like a cochlear implant. So, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And it was, you know, I used to know sign language. So that was really fun to be able to connect with those children and, you know, feel like I was making an impact. Wowzers. OK, well, thank you for sharing that. And. Yeah, I always used to get people say I'm like the UK equivalent of Hannah Nyron at EdTech Times. So I'm not sure if you know her being based, based. I think you're I based do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we had a we had a fun couple of conferences where we were both recording. But uh, well, thank you so much. And if people want to find out more about what you're doing or some of the companies in your kind of educational future of work community, what's the website? Vilcap.com, V-I-L-C-A-P.com. Vilcap.com. So thank you so much, Marissa. Okay, so I've got a bit of bio about you here. So it says, with over a decade of experience in education, innovation, venture investing, and advanced analytics, as investment director at Pearson Ventures, Owen leads the investment process and oversees portfolio performance. He also serves on the board of directors of five investees. 
Previously, he worked as Portfolio Director and Efficacy Director, where he worked across the portfolio to measure, report, and improve financial performance and student learning outcomes. Prior to Pearson, Owen worked as a consultant to EdTech startups in Latin America, an associate at McKinsey & Co., and as Teach for America Corps member in post-Katrina New Orleans. And finally, it says, Owen holds a dual MBA MA at the University of Michigan, where he focused on impact investing and education technology, respectively. He is currently pursuing a PhD at the University of Oxford, focusing on artificial intelligence and education, whilst continuing his role at Pearson. So, wow, you've been quite busy then. <laughs> Absolutely. How do you fit all of that in? Um, I think it's a, a great balance. Luckily, uh, at least over here, that PhDs are more dissertation from, obviously, from um, you kind of usually the, the master's and the PhD are one and the same. And so you have to do coursework, as I'd already done uh, a master's degree in education. I was able to move right on to my dissertation. And I think that there's a bit of double counting, I could call it, that perhaps kind of being able to do, looking into some more uh, advanced research areas on the ed tech side of things can give me a little bit more credibility and uh, a sharper filter as an investor. And then vice versa, kind of my day job working at Pearson gives me connections with really interesting education startups that sometimes facilitate my research, either through access to data sets or just kind of being exposed to really innovative, sharp people. And I'm guessing you're from the States, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, fun fact, I was born in Wales, but my parents are American and I grew up in the States and I moved over to the UK uh, approximately two years ago. And do you keep in with the American way of getting up and starting work really early? Yeah, somewhat. I mean, I think I that's definitely been changing as I've aged. I used to be kind of a night owl, but I'm definitely more of a get up at seven, try to be working by 7.30 type of, type of person nowadays. I was interested in the experience you had of teaching in post-Katrina New Orleans. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I did a program called Teach for America, which I'm sure folks are familiar with, uh, as you, you know, similar to Teach First over here. Um, I, unlike the typical TFA core member, I did it three years after uni. So I was kind of considered a mature core member, as they called it at the time, somewhat euphemistically. Uh, yeah, it was a really fantastic and extremely challenging experience. Never worked harder at anything, nor felt like so much of a failure constantly. I taught high school. I was down there for three years, taught three different high schools. You know, two of the high schools were not very successful. One of them was more moderately successful. And I think it was a really interesting time to be there because, you know, post-Katrina, there was lots of these reforms going on that were somewhat controversial, but, you know, at least in my opinion, were for the most part, definitely better for students, though they probably could have been messaged better or brought the community along a little bit more. And I think I was also in this funny position where it was a time of really exceptional change and a certain amount of kind of hope about turning the needle in terms of educational outcomes. At the same time, the students I were teaching were, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, even up to 22, um, who had been kind of, for a variety of reasons, were very overaged mm. uh, relative to a normal high school progression. And as a result, you know, they had borne the brunt of what was previously a really underperforming and basically dysfunctional public school system in New Orleans. And so it was this very challenging situation where you're dealing with folks who had really been let down by, you know, the public education system, let down by folks in the past through no fault of their own, but now had tremendous deficits. And I was coming in kind of, you know, a bright-eyed 24-year-old, I'm trying to get everyone fired up. And, you know, you can make really important changes in a year or two, but probably there are other deficits that take longer to, to fill in. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was like a really difficult balance. You know, and these folks, they had kids, they had jobs. In some senses, they were more, some of my students were probably more grown up than I was. 
and I was chasing them around telling them they need to turn in their homework on, you know, <laughs> set, set the structure. It's really interesting because, well, there's a couple of things. So one, you mentioned it was, you know, probably the most exciting, but, you know, the most time where you felt like you were failing. And I've got a bit obsessed with the How to Fail podcast. So one of my questions mm-hmm. was going to be, what do you feel like one of your biggest failures and therefore your biggest learnings has been? But perhaps you you uh, you kind of uh, beat me to it there. Well, yeah, it was funny. I ironic. And I was just at a, a, co- a small conference where I helped organize something called the Fuck Up Nights, where you kind of get folks in a small group to just talk about, you know, fairly humbling professional failures they had. And there's not really supposed to be a silver lining. It's not one of these humble brags where like I failed, but actually I came out, you know, yeah. on top. It's actually no, I just failed. And that I mean, sounds man, wonderfully I have, cathartic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. I think if it's with the right people, it can be it can be fantastic. My experience for those, there's a great clip from uh, Game of Thrones where Sir Davos is talking to Jon Snow right after Jon Snow's been brought back from the dead, and you know Jon is lamenting having failed his people and being killed for it, and just getting quite uh, morose. And I guess that was that was a that's a pretty good reenactment of my emotional state while teaching. Sometimes you know yeah. feeling sorry for myself, but still pulling yourself back up. I think more specifically, I'd say that a big learning was there was so much to do and, you know, so many ways in which I was failing that sometimes I spread myself a little too thin and I didn't save enough energy for getting smaller things that I did actually have much more influence over Mm -hmm. across the line. Mm -hmm. So there were a few students who, despite, you know, kind of a lot of the the hurdles been thrown their way, were prepared to go to pretty interesting colleges. You know, I helped them out. I, I pointed them in the right direction. But for those two or three students, if I'd kind of just become, you know, a, a, a tiger teacher or tiger mm-hmm, mom kind of mm-hmm. of some sort and, you know, made them fill out the application with me and followed up with them every couple of days to see if it had gone through, it would have made a big difference for those few folks. And so I think that it, a big learning or failure there was, you know, I was trying to help everyone. I was trying to do everything. And maybe I could have use my energy and time a little bit more strategically to push a few of those specific cases across the line. I mean, that's something that when I reflect upon is still very, very painful because mm-hmm. I'm pretty convinced that, you know, at least for a few folks. Yeah, so I think that's a more specific failure. I guess also it's just taught me so much about self-awareness and this mentality kind of that if most people don't like or get what you're doing, at least if you're kind of in that role, it's the first place you should look is at yourself rather than them. And I think it's, it can be a very normal human action to go, well, you guys don't get it. Or, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm the one. And I think that this, you know, teaching at least in some cases forces you to always look at yourself first if something's not going right. Great advice. I, I remember I interviewed Matt Candler from, uh, is it Schools 4.0? Yeah, yeah. A couple of years back. So I was, yeah. Uh, South by Southwest one one year but yeah it's super interesting okay next question this is a little bit cheeky but how many of your investment peers have a dual MBA MA in impact investing and edtech plus an ongoing PhD on artificial intelligence and education yeah I don't know I don't know many folks who kind of have as much education background as I do though there are some of them definitely I think that that's actually a trend I've started to see more mm-hmm. which is really exciting Actually, like one of my colleagues at Owl Ventures, you know, was a former teacher and did an MBA, MA. So like you're starting to see that more of that combination. Mm-hmm. And I also starting to see a lot of even just kind of more ed focused VCs who don't have the impact side 
start to value either prior teaching experience or, you know, bringing on an impact person. You know, there's a ways to go, but I think that folks are starting to realize the importance of having some, again, you're kind of like industry or area experts mm-hmm. on the product or pedagogy side, you know, both for, I guess, you know, ethical reasons, but also just for business reasons. I mean, I think uh, one of my favorite examples about this is why it's important is Theranos. The investors for Theranos, all the good investors, that the kind of the biotech investors didn't invest in Theranos because they had PhDs mm-hmm. and their advisory councils had like, until we see some type of IP or like, where's the actual research? Why it's none of this peer reviewed? This doesn't make sense technically. But then a lot of the, uh, the people who did give them their money were kind of folks who were not familiar with the industry. So they could just listen to the really, what would seem to be a very compelling story without mm-hmm. having those alarm bells about the technical details. That's, so that's, people, that's yeah. absolutely fascinating because um, I'm desperate to watch that HBO uh, documentary, but I can't work out how to watch it in the UK yet. I don't know if you've seen that. <laughs> Um, I, I have seen clips short and I started reading the book and it's come highly recommended and I've been kind of following that, that story for a bit. And, and so you, I think what, it's, what's the, it's book the way called? to go, but bad blood. Bad That's blood. Right. Okay. Yeah. Everyone should go out and read that. That's kind of interesting. I don't know if you had any from your, you know, studies and research, whether you have any, you know, takeaways that could be consolidated for our listeners. Like if there were things that you could boil down that everyone should consider or whether it's some of the frameworks that you work to that people listening in might want to go and research a bit more for themselves as well so for example I suppose you're doing this PhD on artificial intelligence in education and we just talked about how people can kind of get carried away so Mm. you know um, has that kind of helped to inform where we really are on the for example the spectrum of artificial intelligence in education like to what extent is it really revolutionary at this point? And what, what should people kind of think about when whether they are educators listening in that are uh, being presented with artificial intelligence in inverted brackets, technical solutions for their schools, universities, etc. And then more so in this case, you know, within the workplace, or whether it's people that are trying to develop those up themselves. So the first thing I think that I would say related to that question is there's this very interesting idea that's a good rule of thumb that can be called like a Amara law, Amara's law. Okay. And Roy Amara was a technologist in the States. And he basically said that we overestimate the impact of technology in the short run and underestimate it in the long run. And I think this applies to almost anything you can think of. But uh, I definitely think it's also true with lots of, you know, new introductions of tech and also, you know, kind of all the hype around AI in education. So, I mean, that at a very high level, I'd say that, that, you know, looking 50 years out, it will radically shape how things happen. In the next five years, probably not much is going to change, really. It's always mm-hmm. going to be around the margin. So that's mm-hmm. the uh, first thing I'd say. And the second thing is that, you know, I, I'm by no means a computer scientist, but, you know, some of my research is getting a little bit more technical. So, you know, I'm reading a lot and starting to get into some of the messy details, which, you know, sometimes I'm not 100% sure I understand. But one thing I do understand is that a lot of the most heralded advances that you hear about are, one, usually more narrowly constrained than they seem. And I'll get back to that in a second. And two, that the improvements are much more marginal than they appear. Uh, let me start with the second one. So this idea of the kind of marginal improvements, like the sexiest new algorithm that, you know, won some contest. The reason it won is it performed, you know, let's say it's predicting accurately classifying pictures, mm-hmm. right? Like a typical computer vision program. Like it's probably beating the previous algorithm by 1% accuracy, 
and is doing it in a slightly more efficient way. So it takes a little bit less time or a little bit less cloud computing. And so this major advance, like it is major, but it's actually a pretty small gain. And so when you translate those marginal gains into education, sometimes they don't show up in the short term. And then even if they do, they usually only show up at the population level and they're kind of fundamentally a little bit unexciting for someone who's not, you know, an mm-hmm. education policy wonk. Mm-hmm. And you actually even see this for non-technology interventions. You know, some of the most amazing educational innovations or interventions, rather tech or otherwise, will, you know, improve, increase someone's learning by, you know, a third of a year per year, whatever that means. Right. And so you actually have to have this intervention for several years, Mm -hmm. year on year of high quality to change someone's life trajectory. If you kind of go back to my students, like, you know, my students, like they, what I, you know, I was probably not the best teacher, but even if I was, they would have needed five or six great teachers in a row to make the difference between, you know, uh, being a college graduate and a high school dropout. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, so, it's yeah. so true what you mentioned about it being at the, you know, not being in the public consciousness unless you're an education wonk, because, you know, most people don't know what EdTech is, you know, where I am here. People are still using paper forms, you know, even checks. It blows my mind. So, like, there's such a disparity between what we understand in our in our kind of sector bubble and then kind of what's really happening sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Going back to the just the first bit, is I think that ed tech more broadly, in my opinion, it is leads to easier adoptions and better it's less complicated to understand if it works or not, the more it's involved in systems and processes and admin. And the, the more the ed tech actually is a fundamental part of the learning process, that, that's very exciting. And that's mm-hmm. what we get excited about because that's, like, that's where we see the potential for a really important change. But that's also where it gets really messy and it's hard to deliver. So, you know, if you look at some startups who have been really successful, you know, a lot of them will do with, you know, student information management or compliance or paperwork or stuff and they kind of automate and improve and make those systems a lot more accessible or LMSs or behavior managements. But then if you start getting to ed tech products that like actually are fundamentally interwoven with the learning experience, mm-hmm. that list of really good, you know, products or, or startups gets a lot shorter. Dwindles. Yeah. 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 So that's one of the reasons why I kind of wanted to speak to you today. So obviously in April, uh, we had the big announcement about Pearson Ventures and sort of $50 million fund. And my understanding of where that might be spent or focused on, as it were, is that lifelong learning is a, is a big part of that. So I just, for, you know, for the sakes of, of this new podcast series, I just wanted to kind of pick your brains as the investment director of Pearson Ventures on yeah, which aspects of lifelong learning you're excited by? Just to ask you a few few questions around that. So perhaps we could kick off with, you know, the, the focus on lifelong learning and how that's come about. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think the big shift was that this is very much tied to our five-year global strategy. So, you know, we recently, uh, Chief Strategy Officer joined Pearson about a year ago and has been doing a lot of work, you know, talking to folks throughout Pearson, but obviously throughout the entire education system. And it's prepared a new strategy that is related to what Pearson really wants to focus on going forward. And a few of things have really came out. One is lifelong learning. A second is, you know, employability and upskilling. And a third is being part of a larger education ecosystem. 
you know, so I think if you think in the past, you could almost think of uh, education and antiquated way as some type of production line. You just either tried to own the entire production line or got really good at your one spot in this line. And the point is that it, that's, if that was ever true, it's definitely going out the window now. And so instead of thinking like we have to produce and guarantee and do every bit of an educational process is probably not feasible. So your partnerships and who else you're working with and what, 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 what value you add are extremely important to being successful. And, you know, the second thing is that this fundamental realization that, you know, lots of research, including Pearson's, and you, know, you can go pretty much anywhere back up that careers are getting longer. People are shifting jobs more quickly and the needs and jobs themselves are changing more rapidly. So there's this fundamental shift that large parts of the population are going to have, you know, 10 careers in their life. And not just, you know, 10 different job titles, but, you know, five to 10, 10 different uh, gigs. And I'm 36. I've been working for, you know, almost 15 years now. With a CMA, hurrah. Oh, yeah, fantastic. <laughs> and I've definitely had at least four separate careers to date, if you think about it. And every time, like, luckily, I've been able to kind of interweave it in different ways. But, you know, every time there's been this significant, you know, upskilling, skill change, learn new vocab, learn how things work. Mm-hmm. And that's just the new norm. And so any type of education play, looking at employability, looking at lifelong learning and this stuff has to take that for granted. And so I think what we're saying is thinking is that while there's still a lot of um, interesting things going on in tertiary education, there's a lot of disruption change going to happen there. And obviously Pearson is uh, very heavily involved in that space. There's a whole bunch of white space after you graduate uni that is going to be filled it's already kind of being filled but like that's going to become normal and you know kind of this this lifelong learning journey is just something that has to be figured out uh people are already clamoring for it but that's just going to increase and then so it, at a very high level yeah yeah and in all the press releases i i read um so it's not about uh sort of acquisition pipeline or being lead investors but you're more looking to sort of co-invest with others in the in these type of companies Great. So let me let me just start quickly with kind of like why Pearson's doing this, if that's okay. Why Pearson's mm. is launching why Pearson is launching Pearson Ventures. So the basic idea is that there's this tertiary education changing rapidly and there's this whole new employability, upskilling, lifelong learning space that everyone's trying to figure out. And Pearson knows that at a broad level that it, it needs to at least know what's going on. It also knows that it, it's a large company with lots of legacy interests and sometimes uh, startups will produce really new interesting ideas that we can learn from. And so we are really looking at this as a way for Pearson to keep an ear about like what the most exciting and innovative companies are doing. This is not intended to be a, a way to buy smaller companies or anything like that. It, it's, it's actually we're going to try to behave as much as possible exactly like uh, venture investors. So kind of, you know, stay out of the way, move quickly, find the most exciting companies um, and really focus on, you know, growing them and supporting them as appropriate. So we're taking small stakes. Um, we're not planning leading rounds. We're not. We're not. You know. We're not going to ask for you know joint venture or exclusivity or any of the type of stuff that might appear. You know, when you think of a big corporate, we really are trying to just go with market terms. And as a result, that means that we're we're usually going to need co-investors, and we're also likely going to ask them to lead the round. So we'll usually expect that uh, other venture venture capital investors were either excited about ed tech exclusively, or that's just an area of focus. 
will likely be leading these investment rounds, um, setting the terms and the valuations, all the technical aspects, and we'll come along. And our value add is that we're part of a multinational organization who can you know, help folks expand to new markets, um, give them a little bit of insight on what it's like to build a business, or connect them with area experts. And so that's what we think we add as an investor. The reason Pearson wants to be doing this is that they feel like they can you know, know what's happening in the market and just get more visibility in where things are going uh, five to seven years down the line. So that is about like, the co-investors. You know, there are other, there's a variety of other investors, both education and tech specific, and then mm -hmm. just other investors who have wider remits that, you know, we know some of them were in conversations. Uh, yeah, and looking to, to partner with them where appropriate. So that was, I think, the first question you asked, correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, it's really helpful. And um, then the second question was more about like what we're seeing in the employability space. Well, I or... guess it's interesting to me. So, for example, if I were to ask you, if I'm launching this podcast series all around lifelong learning, the types of people that I'm thinking of interviewing are, you know, investors like yourself in the space, you know, learning and development leads within employers, you know, people that are the sort of curriculum lead behind something like General Assembly, but also... FE colleges are where that's sort of bleeding into the more informal learning. I was just interested if there are any particular individuals. When you think about a really successful lifelong learning company, are there any that spring to mind that where you're like, you should go and have a conversation with them? Or this is, you know, perhaps on the academic side, this is the person that, you know, has really got their head around what's going on. It's always good to sort of see, because you're in this space, what, you know, where the conversations are that you've been having and who I should be following up with, really. What's interesting is that, at least in the States, community colleges, we have this system called community colleges, which are, um, I'm not exactly sure what the analog would be in the UK. The US doesn't have a strong, like, kind of a vocational training system as a lot of European countries. But we do have this thing called community colleges where people can go get two-year degrees, one-year degrees, credentialed. They're usually non-selective, so all you have to do is sign up. Hmm. They're heavily subsidized by the government. They're low cost. And, you know, a lot of their student population is you know, uh, not what one thinks of when they think of a uni student, but that's actually just kind of really speaks to our biases. You know, only, at least in the States, some more familiar with the facts that only 30% of students graduate from a four-year college. And um, only, and only probably about 10, less than 10% of Americans graduated or even attended a uni, uni that you'd have ever heard of. And I'm not talking about like elite, just like you've ever heard mm -hmm. of. But something, you know, like, 80% of Americans have some sort of post-high school education. And so there's this huge area of what stuff that's been going on. It has been going on for 20 years, 30 years, that is really grappling with this issue, but usually doesn't get that much attention because it's not, you know, elite prestigious uh, universities. So I think like kind of the community college or whatever the equivalent over here is a huge area. I think, in, you know, in, this, in the UK, you guys have this system for kind of alternative pathways, qualifications. Mm -hmm that is the first part of kind of how society and how the government would tackle that. I think that the big change is that a lot of those qual systems would set someone up for a trade. Mm -hmm. And so this pathway, like, oh, if I want to be an electrician, at a certain point, I can decide that, hey, maybe kind of something more academic isn't for me. I'd like to get working sooner. I want to start earning money and supporting my family. Hey, electrician's a pretty great job. How do I get certified and trained? That system was developed, you know, earlier in the 20th century when you could be the same type of electrician for 40 years. And, you know, we know now, like, that's not probably going to be the case anymore. So the real question is, okay, if you have to do that every 10 years, mm -hmm. uh, what does it look like? 
so I mean, honestly, I think that uh, there's so much stuff around this. I'll try to come up with a list for you, but I think that I would almost bucket kind of almost like three conceptual categories I'd think about in terms of like what's going on here. One, there's this whole group of things that are basically taking advantage of labor market distortions and trying to capitalize on that by matching people with, you know, areas of need. And so I think that the coding boot camps that you talked about mm-hmm. are a very good example of this. And basically there's been this explosion in computer engineering. There's not enough trained people. It's a specialized skill set. But actually they found out that, you know, if you take a, a reasonably motivated, uh, sharp individual, you can kind of retrain them to be at least an entry-level programmer in six months. What's interesting is most of the people doing these programs are folks who already have degrees from selective universities, already have professional prospects, but they just don't like their job or they want to kind of increase their wage earning. So it's really what you're doing is you're kind of taking already highly skilled and fairly mobile part of the labor force, adding on some skills to help them do a career switch. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I think there's this one bucket of things that's kind of players helping do basically what's a career switch with parts of the population who are already, you know, pretty, pretty well skilled in a more general sense. There's a second kind of level of questions, which is more like institutional, like what are institutional pathways to employability? That's kind of more at a government level. And then the, the third is this lifelong learning where you kind of keep on adding. So it's not necessarily a career switch, mm-hmm. but you kind of have to keep on. It's like ongoing professional education, you know, something similar that, you know, uh, doctors, at least in theory, have to stay up on the latest, you know, medical developments. And so, you know, every so often they have to show they've done this much training. And so those are almost like three kind of buckets of this this whole space that I think are pretty different in their dynamics. And if you if you really zoom in kind of their solutions and what problem they're actually addressing are different, but it's easy to lump them all together in employability or lifelong learning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and when will you be announcing your sort of first round of investments? So we're looking at companies right now, we're talking to a few of them. Um, you know, we'll be making investments probably later this year. It's always difficult to come up with a precise timeline, but yeah, we'll announce them once they've been made. Okay, I look forward to that. Yeah. A couple of final questions. There are a few kind of high profile partnerships between large corporates, say something like Starbucks and Arizona State University, where they're kind of engaging in that ongoing training and sort of also the idea of, you know, as a retention tool for good staff, the ability to make the most of sort of education, whether that's through university or other provider. Have you seen any other kind of interesting partnerships between employers and, you know, the education side? So, for example, I heard also about, I saw Yuval Harari speaking and he was talking about, I think it was AT&T using Udacity. And on a yearly basis or an annual basis, um, employers had to, you know, decide what their top 10 skill sets were. And if they were sort of dipping in any, it was on them in their spare time to use Udacity to like show that they were building those back up otherwise they'd be offered like a very nice severance package but it, you know and so it was Yuval Harari talking about the flip side of lifelong learning where it could perhaps but not become this sort of utopia of things being lovely but things suddenly becoming there's suddenly great transparency on our shortfallings whereas before or shortcomings 
Whereas perhaps before, you know, you had your degree and then you, you, you kind of rode that out for a certain period of time. Whereas, you know, now it could become very transparent where your gaps are. And, and so it's just sort of thinking about the realities of lifelong learning. So that was just a couple. And I just, yeah, yeah. those kind of examples are really interesting for people to follow up on. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think he's absolutely right. That's become much more common. And I think that what's become normal for lots of jobs is, uh, or at least let's say lots of high prestige, uh, fully professional jobs are exactly this, that you'll have some type of equivalent of what already exists in a lot of, uh, a lot of specific professions, such as medicine, where you kind of have to show a record that you're keeping up to date mm-hmm. and that you can kind of lose your status if you don't choose that. I think that that, you know, it will look different in different professions. Still, I think from what I know, the medical profession, it's not very rigorous. It's, you kind of just have to get a sign off. Um, same stuff, I think, legal. You have to do continuing legal education to maintain your legal qualification. That will become a lot more rigorous and a lot more granular. But I think an important distinction also that maybe wasn't captioned there is like, if you think one way of thinking about a job is a bucket of skills. And some of those skills are very general, you know, working in teams, problem solving, stuff like that, where probably the underlying skill set is, takes a long time to be taught. It can't really be mapped out and like kind of people have it or they don't anytime. And there's a whole bunch of other discrete skills. Like, can you use Excel? Um, You know, do you understand this type of analysis? Uh, Do you understand online marketing? Whatever it is Mm -hmm. that actually can be taught in bite-sized chunks. There's this jobs in the past were being created and destroyed more slowly. And also even before they were created and destroyed, they were less in flux. And so what's going to be happening now a lot is skills that used to be relevant for a specific job will no longer be relevant to that job, but they won't all go away. So let's say there's 10 discrete skills. Over a five-year period, two of those skills will drop out and you'll have to learn three new ones to continue being that job. And I think like one of my favorite examples is a librarian. Mm-hmm. Um, this comes from our research. So if you think about a librarian, you know, the old school, it's someone who keeps track of books and like helps you, you know, and you think of them almost as like a book manager. If you're, <laughs> if you don't, if you don't think about it very hard, right. You just think about someone sitting at a desk in the library, telling you to be quiet and then being nice. If you ask them for the right book, obviously that's going away. When I was at graduate school uh, at Michigan, the business school did a renovation and their new library had no books explicitly. They went all electronic. And then you start thinking like, okay, so what's, what's a librarian without books? Mm-hmm. But then of course, if you, if you dig a little deeper, you're like, well, actually, no, they were, they're, they're kind of information organizers. They're helping people comb through large volumes of information to get the relevant content to them in a just in time manner. And you're like, so that core mission is actually more important now than ever. However, like understand the Dewey decimal system or understanding book preservation or best practices that's obviously much less important, but you know, now kind of being able to help folks understand the best way to do database queries when you're going through academic journals is much more important. So if you look at a librarian over a 10-year period, you know, some of the skill, some of their core skill set will have gone. New skills will have entered, and there'll be some kind of core foundational ongoing skills that will have stayed the same. And I think that lots of jobs will look like that. That's a that's a great example. So it's very easy to uh, kind of think about. And I know that there'll be a few librarians listening in, no doubt, from universities that probably experienced that firsthand. So I love that example. So, you know, in terms of artificial intelligence and education, the first few things, artificial intelligence is an extremely broad term that encompasses, you know, a whole subset of fields. And it's 
over the last years, few years, it's gotten so popular, it's kind of just turned into jargon that's so specific that it's hard to know what you're talking about. But if you dig down a little bit, I think that a lot of the ideas that people initially get the most excited about are related to personalization and using technology to personalize learning experience. And, you know, I think this is, it's completely intuitive why people are so excited about this. The, the idea of having, you know, kind of like a, your own concierge or kind of an, ed, you know, an automated educational butler or coach is, would be fantastic if it worked well. Like imagine only being given the content you needed when you need it. So at a, at a high level, it's extremely exciting and provocative. I think we're far away away from that. And I think we also overestimate how useful that would be. For instance, you know, people talk like, oh, we need a Netflix for education. It sounds nice at top level, but actually Netflix gives me pretty mediocre recommendations. You know, it's, mm. it's okay because a lot of times I'm just tired and I want something fun to watch. I spend about but an if, hour like going through Netflix and right. then I turn it off. <laughs> yeah. And so if you think about it, but if, if there was a major outcome that was serious for my professional life based on, you know, Netflix recommendation of a TV show for me to watch, it would be garbage. And so, you know, even the cutting edge paragons of kind of, you know, these prediction algorithms aren't anywhere close to being able to cut it for you kind of nuanced technical educational content. So, you know, eventually I'm sure we'll get there in some way where you'll kind of have, you know, a, a curated list of exactly what you need to learn that will actually work. But I think that's a far way off for reasons that I just explained and also lots of more technical reasons about how these prediction algorithms work and how you train them. What I think is the larger area that I'm more involved in, which is kind of called natural language processing, and I'm in a sub area of that, I think that that is less talked about, mm -hmm. but will have much larger immediate impact on education. Um, and natural language processing is basically allowing computers to understand human speech as it exists in the world, or, or at least manipulate it. Some of the uses of this are, you know, auto-grading like essays, which is still, you know, there's some people making some pretty exciting improvements, but, you know, it's not all the way there yet, but things like chatbots. So if you start thinking about if you integrate a really good chatbot into a learning experience, imagine what that would look like in a classroom. You know, some of the initial, you could have a teacher still teaching 20, 30 kids. And if there was a real deep conceptual disconnect, the teacher would still help them with that. If the student was just trying to understand where the homework assignment was. Mm. You know, they just chat something and the, and the, and the chatbot would like send you the link. And, you know, that's the type of technology that's actually pretty close to being commercially viable now. And it's, it's a much more about kind of being plugging in specific tools or, you know, looking over a corpus of student work to identify trends over time or, or things like that. So that's where I see bigger changes in the next five to 10 years that will actually shift about how things work that are actually based on artificial intelligence. Whereas a lot of the prediction algorithms are kind of just developing a perfect prediction score for how someone will, you know, ultimately turn out. I think they wither under, under scrutiny and we're mm -hmm. a lot far away from those than we think. That's, that's super interesting for a number of reasons. I mean, I, I think that, yeah, uh, one, two, three years ago, the sort of idea of personalized learning and you know adaptive learning and using algorithms in that way was you know talked about a lot and then recently on the podcast people are starting to talk about the fact that you know motivation and sort of face-to-face -face is so important in terms of um, yeah. actually engaging in the content and learning over a longer period of time so it's yeah like you say under scrutiny it's it being challenged a bit more 
And then I was really thrilled to hear about your interest in natural language processing because I'm looking to launch a new series around voice and education as well, voice and learning, because I think that, yeah, that part really, really interests me. And I think, you know, just on a personal level, I get really frustrated with having to engage with screens or logging in and just that kind of stuff. Whereas actually, you know, well, because I'm a podcaster, you know, there's a natural inclination around voice and going back to that face-to-face it you know even if it's not face-to-face but you can hear the tone in someone's voice and that human connection that's a massive mm. thing so so yeah let's let's see um how that all progresses just a final one then so you talked about you know sustainability as well financial sustainability obviously the the kind of ed tech model there are some cases of unicorns and uh, you know, that, that get bandied about. But the, the, the kind of bigger picture is that, you know, for people running these businesses, it is very difficult. It's not fintech. It's it's not ad tech. It's it's something very specific. And the there are challenges to this sector in terms of financial viability and that kind of thing. So I just wondered from an investment point of view, if you see a point of difference with, you know, looking at lifelong learning and, and what opportunities that might afford and how you would distinguish between, you know, perhaps an investment in, say, an edtech business within a school sector in the UK, and then one that is more about, you know, perhaps engaging with whether that's direct to the learner themselves as an employee, or as a a self-employed person, or, you know, whether that's with the employer. So I just wondered, in terms of the financial viability, whether you see a sort of shift and whether that, you know, perhaps the, the return on investment is is more attractive in the in the kind of second option of lifelong learning. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, a great point. You know, I think you, you noted some of the challenges. At least this is kind of my way of looking at it. I think that there are really two dynamics here, which is that, you know, the, the type of edu- educational space uh, startups trying to work in will really dictate their options. And, you know, I think there's at least two key variables I think about one is the business model. So is it more predominantly business to business? So I, I have a product I'm selling to another entity or is it business to consumer? Am I selling it to an individual? And then the second dynamic is, you know, how institutionally integrated or regulated is the space? So, you know, K-12 is highly regulated as it should be for a variety of reasons. And the government's heavily involved and they have a lot of say about uh, how, you know, what mm. standards get set, how things should be done which is appropriate, but that's also just the reality. Whereas if you look at a lot of post-tertiary or outside of tertiary education, it's, it's regulated most like, uh, like most other businesses. And as long as you know, you're doing nothing unethical or illegal, essentially it's left up to the business and the customers to decide if, it's, you know, if, it's a, if, if the agreement's working out, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so to me, I think that B2B businesses, a lot of the time, Outside of K-12, let's just leave that to the side for a while, they can grow a little bit more quickly initially. And if they're more, let me put it this way, they're more likely to succeed for a variety of reasons. But when they succeed, they're not, they're very rarely going to be massive unicorns. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of direct consumer B2C models, there's, it's a lot more difficult to make them succeed for lots of reasons. But if they blow up, you know, sky's the limit, so to yeah. speak, in yeah. the employability space. And so, you know, I think that kind of from the investment perspective, you know, when I'm looking at companies, I'm like, sometimes you'll see a company that's this really exciting, interesting B2C play. You're like, oh, wow, you know, if that's successful, that could be massively successful. But then suddenly you're like, yeah, but they're going to have to compete direct with all the competitors and, Mm -hmm. you know, customers are fickle. 
<laughs> they're gonna have to spend a ton of money and advertising to even get to know those customers xyz and then if you look at the uh, a b2b business then you can start like well you know actually it's only going to ever serve this many people because we already have a very clear idea of what the market size is or you know they could probably serve this many people so you can very quickly get to a a less exciting best case scenario number but then it's also a lot easier to see how they could actually achieve that. You're like, well, actually, to make those sales, they kind of need to target these two institutions, and they can actually find out what those those uh, pain points of the institutions are, so they can, you know, um, interact with their customers better. Mm-hmm. You know, that they can keep those customers because it's like easier to focus on three or four big clients than thousands, tens of thousands. And so I think there's kind of this in- inherent tension. You know, people, I, I, it would be ridiculous to say one's better than the another. You know, it's these. There's just lots of different trade-offs, I guess, when you're considering those. And then I guess going back to this kind of K-12 versus employability, I think the, so that was kind of like the B2B versus B2C. And there's like regulated versus non-regulated. The tension there is that because the government is heavily involved in K-12 and to a certain extent, you know, uh, official tertiary education, there's lots of resource in it. Again, as it should be, you know, there's lots of society basically as a whole is dedicating resources to this. So in some ways, you know, the, the markets are massive. So, you know, a lot of times, again, in the States, when folks are very drawn to the K-12 sector, because the spend in it is enormous. So, you know, there seems to be like lots of opportunity, lots of students going there, lots of rooms for improvement, and also lots of room for sales. The flip side, though, is it's also, um, you know, it, it's fundamentally political, you know, educating a nation's children is kind of like one of the most fundamentally political questions there is. And I don't think you can get around that. And so what that also means is that suddenly you're going to get pulled into political squabbles. You have to deal with all kinds of different level of government regulation, the change in winds and the like. And so that can also make it much more difficult. Whereas if you go to like professional learning, you know, as long as I'm an ethical company and I'm delivering on what I'm selling to my customer, that's kind of it. And, you know, so it's, it's not up to me, it's up to me and the customer to decide, hey, does this course, does this path of learning, you know, is this good for you? Is it good for me? Let's, let's collaborate on this. Really interesting division, actually. And when I think about the uh, VIP kids and the Baijus, I think, yeah, they, they kind of yeah. align with uh, your analysis of B2B versus B2C. So great way of thinking of it. They're also not K-12. Yeah. They, they yeah. are ancillary, right? So like, it's not Baijus and VIP kids, like they don't sell directly to the kids. At least, that's, I mean, at least to the schools, mm-hmm. at least around they're selling to parents. And as long as the parents are happy, that happens. Okay, cool. Well, thank you so much, Owen. If people want to find out more about Pearson Ventures, what sh- where should they go? Who should they speak to? They can uh, talk to me, Owen. I'm on Twitter, LinkedIn. And then, you know, uh, we can let you guys go to pearson.com slash ventures. And that's our website. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate that. Likewise. that's all for this week's episode thanks so much for listening in and i do hope you enjoyed and found some gems of inspiration to take away with you don't forget that for events you might be interested in around the world you can go to the edtechpodcast.com forward slash events that's all for now thanks for subscribing and listening bye bye